0: Good morning. Now I'm on. Thank you. It's great to be here today. I hope you guys are enjoying the spring that God is giving us. We're almost into summer. And I know that things are picking up for many of our families with sports and activities and events and desires to go camping and baseball and track and all these things are going on. So life is busy, but I hope that you're taking time to stop and pause and, and really drink in as you're looking around, and as you're going about your day and your life, that you're seeing the grace of God on display, even in creation, even all the good gifts he's given you, and you're, you're turning your daily routines and habits back to the glory of God and worship of him. With that thought, we come this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1, and so far in our study in sanctification, we have been focusing on, if you guys could give me the first slide on my presentation, that'd be great. Um, We've been focusing on the letters of Paul and the, the idea of Christian growth from the Apostle Paul and his letters. But today we're going to turn our attention to the Apostle Peter. And I love the fact that we're able to do this because we're able to see the unity of the New Testament teaching on the nature of the Christian life and the nature of spiritual growth in us as believers Again, if you're here with us today, even as I talked last week, if you're here with us as a guest or someone new, or maybe you, you would even call yourself a Christian, uh, this morning this, this message is for you as well, because you're going to hear about the transforming power of God through his grace in Christ Jesus. And this is the, the same truth that you must understand as you pursue God and actually want to enjoy life with him and forgiveness of sins. And we're going to touch on that momentarily. But as we come to this letter in Second Peter, there's an idea that immediately stands out in this first section. And I think, to some degree, we all can identify with this at one level or another. There's a, a sense that Peter is getting at that these Christians that he's writing to, they're scattered, and many of them are facing persecution. There's a sense where they're, they're struggling with this idea of being fruitful or productive in their Christian life. Now, how many of you this week have had to struggle with the idea of being productive and fruitful just in life this week? How many of your bosses wanted you to actually produce something this week and make them some money? Yeah, I think all of us. Um, Some of us struggle with it more than others. Some of us are great at creating all these checklists, these boxes, that, you know, to-do list. And there's a box and there's about 10 of them or maybe 30, depending on who you are. And if you get to the end of the day and all the boxes are not checked off, some of you have a panic attack, right? Like, all the boxes are not checked off. I need to get more and more productive. I need to be more and more efficient with our time. I think, to some degree, we all struggle with this fear of being unproductive or unfruitful in our life. And probably rightly so, because I think God created us to be fruitful and productive people just as human beings. Go back to the story of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. There, there's a, a command to be fruitful and multiply. I mean, there's a built into who we are as humans to be fruitful, both in producing children and filling the face of the earth with humanity, as well as to producing things that are worthwhile and engaging in productive lives. We were made by God to be productive and fruitful. And yet we know this story, Genesis 3, sin enters in and all of that, becomes futile to a degree. And we face the curse of the fall and, and the pain and the inefficiency and the unproductive aspect of life. So we all struggle with this. In fact, this is the cultural value of our generation, of our era, is it not? All you have to do is read some blogs or look up uh, some business articles or subscribe to... Um, any sort of like news outlet on your smartphone and, or computer, and you get these updates and these articles that come in every day. And there's life hack for this, right? Five tips on how to be more productive. Five tips on how to be healthier today. Um, how do you lose 30 pounds in one week? Um, you've seen them, right? And many of you have clicked on them, and you've read them. You've maybe tried to apply some of them. Maybe you even purchased a product as a result of that. And it's very easy to see that our culture has an obsession with efficiency and productivity, whether it's in the area of money or health or fitness, food, relationships, even raising our children or sports. And as we see this constant flow of information come in, we're struck by something, that We all understand that all of this information is supposed to help us do something, though, right? We're actually supposed to take it in, and make progress in our life and be productive. And it's right there that we've sensed the problem. In fact, I opened up Evernote this week and I have all these notes of all these articles that I've saved just because they're brilliantly written and they're so helpful in my time management and my leadership and my teaching. And I go through, I was like, oh, I forgot that one. Oh, that's a really good one. Man, I need to read that one again. Right? We take in all this information, so much information, in fact, that we can't even keep up with it. We can't even apply it to our life, and we forget it. It just comes in, and it just goes off to the side. So we devour these blogs. We devour books. We go to conferences. We purchase products. But unless we actually take action and apply the truths that we're learning to our lives, no real fruit will come about, right? Right? We'll just simply still be in the same state, longing for more productivity, longing for more fruitfulness, but having nothing. But in some situations, we know that the risk is too great to not do anything, right? Our jobs. Our boss says, you need to address this area at your annual evaluation. He pays for you to go to a conference She emails you an article to read. They want a report. And you know that if you don't follow through, if you don't apply this, that there's something at risk, and it might be your job. Or it might be in the area of money or finance. You know that you need to do something about your debt. You know that there's a relationship that needs to be tended to, so you need to apply some truth to reconcile that relationship. See, there's areas of our lives where we sense this need for growth and we realize that there's a great risk, there's a great cost to that area of our life if we don't actually change, if we don't actually grow. And it's at that point that we're actually willing to change. Many times, though, unfortunately, we fail to recognize that this risk is true in our spiritual lives as well. In fact, Peter addresses this risk. In fact, he presents it two ways. And we're going to see this unpacked through 2 Peter 1 in just a second. But, but really, Peter says this. There's, there's, there are two things at risk. One is present enjoyment of the blessing and the grace of God, as well as your future eternity in heaven itself. And again, we, we hear that and we think, yeah, okay. Hmm. rolls through our... No, no, Peter's going to get pretty intense. In fact, the point of the message today is make every effort to grow. Because Peter says that, that even your understanding and your experience of your salvation is determined by how you apply what you're learning. The assurance that you have that you are actually in Christ, that you are actually going to enter the kingdom of heaven someday... Rest in some measure on how you are obeying the truth that you've been given. In fact, within this text, there's a warning to all those who are gathered with this church, these churches that Peter's writing to, and he's calling them out and even warning the other believers that if you follow the path of these ones, you will forget about the cleansing power of Christ over your sin, and you may forfeit the gospel. It's a pretty powerful warning. So, how do you then become effective and fruitful in the Christian life? Well, very simply, you must make every effort to grow. Okay, so if you read that, think, wait a second. How much effort did we really put into growing to this point in our life so far? How much effort did you put into your birth? You? None. From there, yeah, your parents may have fed you, you give you food, drink, clothes, and you grow, right? In some ways, there's very little effort to just the natural process of growth. And in, on one hand, there's a, there's a spiritual truth element to that as well. There's an element where God, and it's, uh, Pastor Steve has talked about this already for, through Romans, where God, through the Spirit, is actually at work in us to actually cause us to grow. But Peter's going to come at it from the other angle, and he's going to emphasize the human aspect of this growth. This is more like the guy who wants to not simply grow taller, but grow bigger, right? There's a discipline that needs to take place. If Dave Needham was here, I'd point him out. I don't see him this morning. The man is intense. But he is making every effort in what he eats, what he drinks, when he works out, to get big, to grow. One of those blogs that I was telling you about earlier that I read and keep track of, I went back and I read, and and one of these authors actually took note of this, and I love how he stated this. He says, a strange thing has happened. These values of growth have actually been substituted or subverted for the sake of consumption. Instead of becoming more prolific in the production of goods and services in a creative manner, we have become consumers of information. We have settled for intake instead of output, because it it makes us feel like we are involved in creation and production without actually doing any of the hard work. We're going to come back to that in a moment, but this is what's happened in our Christian lives as well, in our spiritual lives. Somewhere along the way, we have confused spiritual growth with simply consuming information. It's crept into many of our lives, and it's something we must strive against. So Peter comes at this text in second Peter chapter one, and we'll start with where we st- finished last week, really, from Colossians, where, where Paul says, "Know who you are." Know who you are in Christ. So Peter starts there again, and we shouldn't be surprised because there's unity amongst the New Testament authors and how they approach this topic of growth. Know who you are. So verse 1 of Second uh, Peter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I wish we could spend some time just unpacking what even this introduction of Peter means to these churches as he's identifying with Christ and he's identifying with these churches. But he's writing to those who have, t- who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He starts again with their position in Christ. They have received righteousness. A righteousness that's alien from them. It's not their own, but it's from God through Jesus Christ. And I love this little phrase. To those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. With, with who? An equal standing? With who? With the apostles. With the apostles. See, sometimes we come to these texts in the New Testament and we think, Man, wouldn't it be great if we were there? Our lives would be so different if we actually knew Jesus face to face and personally, and if we actually could experience this and we could talk about grace. And, you know, Peter's going to talk about in his letters about actually seeing Christ transfigured and what an amazing experience this is. And we were like, wouldn't that be great if we were there? Our lives would be so different. We would respond so differently. We would we'd be so holy. We would be so full of grace and love and kindness if we actually confronted Jesus face to face and were able to hear his teaching. And Peter says, Listen, to all those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours. They, Peter's basically saying this. If he was to put it in our language, the apostles, they've got nothing on you. They've got nothing on you in your experience of faith and righteousness in Christ. Christ does not show partiality to any believer, whether it's the apostle or us, on the grace that he pours out. In fact, the next verse. Of Peter prays, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 2. Look, God wants you to experience the abundance of his grace in, in your salvation. God wants you to experience that. Which begs the question, well, how do we experience that? Peter is praying for this. So, how is it multiplied? We go from there to verses 3 and 4. Know what Christ has done. So, so know who you are, and a part of knowing who you are is knowing what Christ has done for you, verses 3 and 4. So what has Christ done? And really here, the focus in 2 Peter is on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in this section, it's kind of hard sometimes to see, is he speaking about the Father, or is he speaking of the Son? But I think we can see here that, that he, is, he is directing our attention to Jesus Christ, as the, the person who ends, verse 2, through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, and it is his divine power. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Wow. Can we even unpack that whole thing this morning? No. His divine power has given us What? He's given us all things. So last week we talked about in Colossians 1 and 2 the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And here we see that sufficiency come out again. He has given us, He has granted to us all things that we need for life. This physical life that you have, this air that you're breathing, the fact that you're here, awake, alive, listening, thinking, worshipping. He's given it to you. So right here at the very beginning, the theology of the book is this, is that there's a focus on God as our sovereign creator, the one who has given us our life, and a focus on God as our savior and as our Lord. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, all that we need to live a godly life. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And there's this word that comes up multiple times throughout Peter, and it's the word knowledge. And Peter is using that word intentionally to teach the people he's writing to and to teach us. This isn't just a knowledge, of again, of knowing facts. and We're going to expand on this a little bit later, but it's not just about knowing facts, but it's a knowledge of experience, a knowledge of conversion, the kind of knowledge that brings about transformation. In fact, as you read in 2 Peter about this idea of knowledge, you're going to see that he, he always attaches this knowledge with transformation. It's never just to have more information poured into our skulls, to say that we know something, it's great the fact that some of you can tell me the exact dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant and the Temple. That's great. But how is that bringing transformation in your life? See, the Christian life is not just about knowing that there are 66 books in the Bible and you know, the different breakdown between the Old and the New and the Poets and the History and the Gospels and the Apocalyptic literature and all the different nuances of genre and that the Bible is written in three different languages. Those are all great things to know. But how is your life actually being transformed? Your knowledge about these things and your knowledge of Christ is worthless unless your life is actually being transformed, is what Peter's saying. And then he says this amazing, amazing statement in verse four: "By which, through his own glory and excellence, by which he is granted to us his precious and very." great promises. Do you get the sense by those words, his precious and very great promises that Peter's just he's trying to come up with some words to express to us and draw us in to the magnificence of our salvation that we have in Jesus. It's like he can't come up with enough words his precious and very great promises. In fact, your English teacher, if you're in college, will tell you, hey, if you don't have to use the word very, you know, try to use a different word, just kind of bland. And Peter's like, I don't, I don't know how to tell you, but it's very great. They're precious. And some of you think of Lord of the Rings at that point, and Gollum, my precious. Would we not approach Christ this way, and the gospel this way? This is precious to us, and we will do everything we can to hold on to this. This is reminiscent, again, of, of Paul and Colossians. Hold on to Christ, for he's your life. But he is granted to us. He has given to us his precious and very great promises. And, and then he, the amazing statements just pile on. So that through them, through these promises, promises of what? Well, the promises of the gospel, the promises of forgiveness of sin, the promises of Christ, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The word is fellowship. We just throw that word fellowship around like it's meaningless. We're going to have a fellowship. We're going to drink some coffee and have fellowship. We're going to eat some cake and have fellowship. And Peter says, through these very precious and great promises, you're going to enter into the fellowship of the divine nature. Wow. Now, obviously, Peter is picking up some terms here that are common in the day. In Greek mythology as well, and he's actually combating the idea. Because when we read that, even today, we think, well, how's this going to happen? How do we actually become partakers or participants in the divine nature? And then probably immediately our minds conjure up ideas like Hollywood, maybe, of Thor with a big hammer. Or what other sort of deistic kind of presentation that they can. Maybe it's Superman for you. Or maybe it's the idea that some of these commercials portray where there's, you know, we're sitting on these lofty, you know, soft beds with white fur, and there's all this chocolate. Ferrero Rocher, or whatever it is. It's fountains of chocolate, and just reclining and indulging. Right? It's interesting, though, that this portrayal, what Peter is going to explain, if we are actually partakers of the divine nature, is actually very contrary to, to all of these images that our culture portrays. It's not, it's not an image of power. It's not an image of, of self-indulgence, self-comfort, self-pleasure, anything I want. This is not the image of the divine nature that we are called to imitate and participate in. Now look, in fact, he he says, this is how you experience and partake of this divine nature. It's because you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He says, it actually runs contrary to those kind of cultural ideas of deity and experiencing the Godhead. It's, it's, a, it's an experiencing a freedom, an escape from the power of sin in our life, so we no longer have to submit to that. Doesn't this remind us of Paul in Colossians, that we have died with Christ, therefore we're dead to sin, and we're dead to the world, so why do we act like we live in it any longer? We have escaped. So know what Christ has done. He's, he's given us, he's poured out on us his Rich and precious and very great promises, and through them, He has brought us into the participation of the divine nature, which is our union with Christ. This is how we participate in the divine nature. As we believe, as we hear the gospel, and as we believe and repent of our sin and turn to Christ, God sends out the Spirit to us, and we are being transformed, and the Spirit's dwelling in us. We have the indwelling presence of God in us, and we are being changed. And this is how we have escaped from the corruption that's in the world, as we put our faith and trust in Christ and the cross, and, and this is where we live in our ever-growing experience of his grace. So So again, this morning, if you're here and you say, man, this is a totally new concept to me. I've, I've never heard, or maybe I have heard, that, that there is life in Christ and, and that I need to actually find an escape from my sins, Will you hear this, these words from Peter this morning? And will you embrace Jesus Christ? Will you trust in him? Will you believe? Will you repent of your sins and turn to him? Because this is the only way of escape. Right now, it's very easy to look around in our culture, right? In, in this political landscape in the election year. And we see the corruption of the world that's all around us. We just see it. We feel it. In fact, our stomachs turn almost every time when we see a news article about one of the candidates. But yet, we we still turn our attention to them as if they are our savior. As if somehow, by electing the right person into office in the United States, we are going to be saved. We are going to be delivered from all this moral corruption in our country. Friends, that's not the truth. The only one who can save us from the moral corruption that permeates our country and the world is the true King, the Creator, Sovereign God, and our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So look to Him. Don't look to a political party or a political candidate to be your Savior. Don't look to them for an escape from the corruption in your own life and the corruption that's in the world. Look to Christ who alone can deliver you. Will you do that today. And then we come to the main point of Peter's little sermon here. And in fact, in some ways, this is exactly what this is. There's a small sermon right here at the beginning of the the letter to these people. And hopefully the point of my sermon is Peter's sermon. So that's why, make every effort to grow. Make every effort to grow. So he builds on this and he says, for this very reason. Well, what, what reason is that? The reason that we have been given escape, the reason that we have been, have been brought into the, the promises of God. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement or add your faith to your faith virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, as we, as we read that, we, again, we have to understand what, what Peter's doing here, and how this is a literary device, and it's like a stair step, right? You, you, know, you have the, the bottom stair, and it's like, okay, you got faith, ground floor. And in one sense, that's true, that faith is the starting point. And then from there, it's like it steps up. And he says, add to this, add to this, add to this. It's like you're building something. Well, sometimes we, we think of this um, in this way, but if, but if you were to look at the, the, the characteristics, like if you start with faith and move to virtue and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, then, then if, you, if you think this is, is merely a progression and you have to build one on top of the other, I think faith is the foundation, but, but you think, man, you know, I, just, I have to be totally self-controlled, before I can start loving my brother. Right? Okay, we understand that. As we look at these things, well, well, virtue, this, this a pursuit of goodness in every aspect of life, well, you know, I'm just not quite sure that I have reached the level of goodness yet where I can continue to grow in more knowledge. And then, of course, you have the, the very problematic one at the end, love. So... so so if we take Peter this way, that, that you've got to move in this progression, and it has to be done in this order, then then we're leaving love to the very end, right? And that's not good. So it's better to just maybe see it this way. That as faith is the foundation, yes, faith is the turning point of our lives where we initially believe and enter into a relationship with God, and on that faith, the confession of faith of, in Christ, from there we, we grow in these things. So faith, yes, maybe is the starting point, but then love might be viewed as the pinnacle, right? The preeminent virtue of the Christian life. So it seems like the Christian life is framed this way. It starts with faith. And love permeates everything that we do. In fact, the other writers of the New Testament say it this way, right? If we don't have love, we have nothing. Paul says, above all these things, pursue love. Love is what holds all these things together, whether it's in the body of Christ, holds all of us together, or maybe even these virtues. These, love is the thing that holds them all together. So what is faith without love? What is virtue? What is goodness without love? What is knowledge without love? What is self-control without love? What is perseverance against moral temptation without love? What is godliness, the life that's totally devoted to God without love? What is brotherly affection? How do you even have brotherly affection without love? See, it's impossible. So, so love is the glue, if I can say it this way, that holds all of these things together. Yes, the Christian life and the pursuit of these virtues starts with faith. But love encompasses them all. Make every effort, Peter says. And some of you, that rubs you the wrong way. Wait, wait, I thought the whole Christian life was about faith and grace, Matt. You keep saying that, faith and grace. I'm like, yeah. But grace demands that we exude Exert effort. This this phrase is the idea that every ounce of our determination that we can muster should be brought to bear. So, so the question is all of these things are true about you. You've received the promises of God. Christ has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And yet you're content just to kind of sit here and stagnate. We're, we're consumeristic. Give me more knowledge. Give me more Bible studies. Give me, give me more of this. Give me more of this. But you never actually obey what you know. And see, here, here's the lie that we have bought into in the Christian church, in, in the American church, is that we always need something new. And the desire for more new can become a, a sort of facade for a lack of desire to obey. And we have this sense of growth because we're just taking in more new, more new, more new, more new. Brothers and sisters, I'm so thankful for all the Bible studies we can offer you on Sunday mornings. I'm thankful that many of you meet together during the week to do Bible studies. Many of our ladies are a part of Bible studies on Monday nights and Wednesday nights and Thursday nights. And I'm so thankful for all of that. But the question is this. What are you doing with that knowledge? Are you exerting every effort to apply what you're knowing? If you're not then please, stop learning and start obeying. Don't buy into the lie that just because you're consuming and taking in more and more, that you're actually growing. Peter says, you have this knowledge, it has brought about a certain amount of transformation, now you must make every effort to grow. So so the question is, what are you doing? Personally. What am I doing? Personally. Personally. What are we doing to grow in virtue? Virtue simply is this idea of goodness in every aspect of our life, a moral excellence. Everywhere you go, things turn to to good. You're living for the good of others. You're seeking to fulfill your God-ordained purpose as created in Genesis 1 and 2, to promote the life of God to point other people to things that are truly about life. Knowledge. Yeah, there's this ongoing personal and relational knowledge that we need through Christ. Yes, we need to pursue knowledge. Yes. But this knowledge comes not merely through intellectual pursuit or else not complete. And we stop short. Here's a great quote for you from D.A. Carson. In fact, the Praying with Paul study is going to read this this morning. In- increasing knowledge of God is inseparably linked to obeying God's revealed will. We must learn something of that will to obey it, yes, but discovery of more of that will is contingent on obeying what we know of it. See, again, we we fall into this trap of thinking we just need to know more stuff. We just need to know more stuff. No more stuff. And we fail to exert effort to obey. And in God's economy, in God's system, in the way he's ordained things to work, he reserves more knowledge and more growth and more grace for those who obey. Self-control. So, so how, are you, how are you exerting effort? How am I exerting effort to have power or dominion over oneself, especially in regard to the consumption of food and drink? The use of your tongue and in se- and sexual desire. Is there personal restraint in these areas? Steadfastness or perseverance. To hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. Specifically, under moral temptation. To endure, to say no. To the temptations and the allures of sin? Are you striving? Are you making every effort to endure this temptation to say no by the grace of God to sin? Paul Paul writes this in Titus, remember? This is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to sin. So when temptations come, do you easily fold? Do you easily give in? Or is there a battle? Is there a fight? Godliness, or probably in the, in the Greek, it's the idea of duty. The, the wholeness of your life, you are a holy, devoted person to the life of God. And of course, included in this is a loyalty not only to God himself, but to his people, to this community of believers. So, so you're wholly devoted in your godliness, that is, to the things of God, to the people of God, to the loyalty to God as your sovereign Lord and creator. How are you making every effort to live out your loyalty to God and to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or have you betrayed that loyalty by how you talk about them, how you interact with them? Brotherly affection. We inherently understand this, that in a family, there is a sort of natural brotherly and sisterly affection for siblings, for parents. For children. And in the body of Christ, we are a new family. And so Peter says, how are you pursuing this? How are you making every effort to cultivate brotherly affection between one another? You can you go through all of these. Just ask the question, what am I doing? What efforts am I making in this area, in this area? And I think it's interesting that Peter has chosen... These eight, including faith. think, wow, there's nothing here on the list about specific things maybe that we can sort of check off. Right? It's it's really easy to say, okay, just for example... Your standard of holiness is this. You only go to one movie a year. Just an example. Oh, but they went to three. See, that's really easy. But when you come to measure your growth in virtue, how you're living for the goodness of other people, how you're growing in practical knowledge and understanding of what you know about God, your obedience, self-control, how you're actually restraining your own desires and your, and your own tongue, how you're actually enduring and persevering in the face of temptation. These things are not very easy to measure, are they? That's why we so easily fall into a legalistic tendency, or that's why we so easily fall the other way into just rampant license and just do whatever it is we want to do. And Peter's calling for a middle way. He says, just make every effort and what that looks like for you might look different than somebody else but are you making every effort in the body of Christ to pursue these things? Love, the crown jewel of Christian virtue. Giving yourself to Christ and others. One final illustration of this and and we'll move to the last (coughs) section but there's a kind of an interesting that's a crazy commercial recently. I think it's an insurance commercial. And there's this real skinny, white, pasty guy in a gym with some dumbbells. You've seen it. And you're just standing there. And over the course of a 30-second commercial, it flashes back, and this white, skinny, pasty guy turns into a big, bronze, buff guy in the course of 30 seconds, right? And we we recognize the ridiculous nature of this because it's so unnatural. Every aspect of it's so unnatural. And it's ridiculous to our minds, but so we laugh and we find it humorous and it's proving the point of this insurance company. I think whatever the mantra they're they're having this guy say, it's like, see, you do this, you're gonna come out this way, whatever it is they're trying to communicate. But I think we even buy into this in our Christian lives and think, hey, I come to Sunday. Hey, I was saved once way back then. I believed and repented the gospel. And I come on a Sunday morning and I get my knowledge. And then I just kind of live my life because I got my knowledge and I was saved way back then. And and I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. Well, Peter goes on. Verses 8 to 11. And here's where we'll end. Here's his promise to you. Here is the promise of God to us. For if these qualities are yours and increasing. See, there's a theology of growth. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's the word knowledge again. And what's the point? The point is that you have knowledge and that you're actually being fruitful and effective with that knowledge. Your life is being transformed and maybe other people's lives are being transformed as well as a result. But, verse 9. There's the positive, verse 8. Here's the negative. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See, here's the Here's the spectrum. If you're pursuing these things with making every effort, fruit's gonna abound. You're gonna be fruitful. This is how God has created it to be. This is how God has ordained it to be. But if you fail to pursue these things, and here is the warning, you will forget. You will forget the gospel, the promises of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with this idea of even assurance of your salvation. Well, here's my first counsel to you. One, the fact that you're asking the question is a good indication that there's a spark of faith in your soul. And here's the call to action for you don't just grovel or sit in your doubt, in your self doubt, and your questions, but rather stand up and pursue and press into the grace of God by seeking to pursue these virtues in your life by the power of the Spirit. Your questions will be answered along the way. Don't wait until your questions are answered before you start laboring and making every effort to follow the life that Christ has called you to. Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent, ancestors, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. See, here's the, here's the, the need. We must validate. Remember, Peter's writing from the human perspective. Right From God's perspective, he calls, he chooses, he elects. He brings us into the life of God. But from the human perspective, we must validate this. And how do we validate it? We validate it by having a life that is transformed, by giving every effort, by making every diligent pursuit of these qualities. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And this isn't just the idea of sin. We're not going to attain less perfection in this life. That's glorification. The idea of falling here is actually falling away from the gospel into a, uh, into a life of apostasy like the false teachers, like those that are penetrating these churches here. There's a warning here. Again, from the human perspective, we must hold these things in tension. We're not earning our salvation. We're not creating any self-righteousness that gets us into heaven, but we are living out and validating the call and the election of God on our lives as his people. And then verse 11. Again, amazing statement. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. Your diligent grace efforts will result in the realization of the promises. And don't miss that. All of this is of grace. Through Christ. Christ is our example. Christ is our sustaining power through the Spirit. Any labor that we put forward to pursue these virtues in the Christian life, to grow in Christ, He's given us that desire. He's given us that power. He has given us that grace. So, what do we do? Well, this week, this week, how how are you growing? What efforts are you making? Can you just go through these things and ask those questions? Would you identify one of these virtues today, even as you're sitting there, as you're looking, even as we pray and as we sing our final song t- together? Would you identify at least one of these virtues that you know is desperately lacking in your life? And would you make every effort to begin pursuing it? And go from there. Right? We're supposed to pursue all of them. So so go from there. Just choose a starting point and go from there. Maybe you choose one a week, maybe you choose one a month. But, but again, the way God has created things work, typically what happens is these things come together. If you focus on growing in Christ, he's going to bless and he's going to bring transformation in ways you can't even anticipate and see. So by God's grace, what efforts are you making? Some of you need to make radical change in your life. Some of you need to consider how you're spending your time and money and resources and energy. You're, you're just spending them on yourself. You're self-focused. Some of you need to be intentional with what you're already doing in the pursuit of Christ. Some of you just simply need to obey what you already know. In fact, that's probably true of all of us here today. We We just need to obey what we already know what we ought to do today. But I know this. All of us need to respond. All of us need to respond. Christ is calling you to make every effort effort to grow in your spiritual life. So how will you do that? How will you do that? Let's pray.